Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mike Springston FFC Podcast, where we coach you in the Word. We want to welcome all of those of you from around the United States who are downloading our information, Bible studies, preaching, teaching, and those of you from around uh, the world that are doing the same. We welcome you. We want you to contact us at springston56 at gmail.com, mikespringstonministries.com, ffcma.org and through family fellowship chapels messaging direct messaging any one of those ways you can contact us we'd love to hear from you with a word of encouragement we'd love to hear from you with uh, a question or confirmation or whatever it is that uh, you want to share with us we would be more than thrilled to hear from you to do just that. So um, at any rate, we're going to begin today with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into uh, probably at least a two-part series uh, session on the reason Jesus had to die. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Open our eyes that we can see, our ears that we can hear, and our heart that we can understand what the Word of God is saying to us, and then let us apply it to our lives so that we can be changed into the image of your dear Son. Jesus, we ask that you would speak from the throne room, and the Holy Spirit would reveal what you want us to know and what you want us to do. And as he reveals that, we will receive it, and we will release it to your people. We give you praise and honor and glory for all of it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. But to minister. But to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. We're going to talk about the reason Jesus had to die, and it was to minister. First and foremost, to minister. Then, to give his life a ransom for many. Now, what or who, the question is, is at the center of the spiritual universe. Many today seem to think that man is the center of the spiritual composition. When we listen and read about the methods of description of man, we see that most of our teaching and preaching places man squarely at the heart of all of the actions and intentions and purposes of God. But when we read Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, we find Jesus saying, but to minister, then saying, and, two, two, two separate works here. The belief system allows man in our day to feel as if he has the ability to command and control and even at times manipulate God. It allows man to live under the misguided notion that God is indebted to him because of Jesus, that man deserves the acts of God and therefore man can do all of that commanding, demanding, and manipulating his influence and his blessing upon whatever need, frivolous or not, 
that man feels is important to him. Why is that? Because in man's vision of himself as the center of the spiritual universe, we are the reason for all the fuss concerning the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, let's look at this from what we can learn from the Bible concerning the plan of God. Maybe we will see that man was a part of the spoil of victory. Remember, Jesus came first to minister. Maybe we will see that after the works of which Jesus accomplished, man is included by something that man must do. Maybe we will identify that it was the conquest in the spiritual that was in fact the reason Jesus had to die. Now many believe and are taught that Jesus is giving us love, the, the love theory to attempt to win souls to the kingdom of God. Jesus loves you, man. There have been many who have said, and this would include me at various times during my ministry, that if you or I had been the only person on earth, that Jesus would have died for just you and me. Well, this makes a nice topic of conversation and a nice preaching theater, but it is, is that really the truth concerning the life and death of Jesus Christ? Remember, he came to minister. Then he came to give himself as a ransom for many. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see a man who has lived his life with one overarching goal. That was to show first to Israel and second to the world who the Father was. Now we know that the Father, of course, in and of himself is love. So in his activities as recorded in Scripture, Jesus went about doing good. According to Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. So Jesus was a man doing good because of the anointing that was upon his life. He was given power through the Holy Ghost to minister and demonstrate the love of God or who God actually was to Israel. Out of Jesus came good, healing, and deliverance for the oppressed. These were acts that showed Israel that he was sent from God and working as they had in the past seen God work. His life before Israel was one that caused many disagreements between the religious because there was a difference in their mind and a concern concerning his actions. They being steeped in the way of the law were not moved by compassion or love. They were ingrained in the rituals and the rites of the law, and of course, they had taken much pains to stake out the teachings of the law. In so doing, they assumed that they were right and that they were right with God, and of course, they were neither. So Jesus comes to set the record straight, if you will, 
concerning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that he knew much more about God than they did because he told them in John chapter 8 that before Abraham was, I am. And this angered the religious as they saw him as trying to be one among them that was equal with God. So the life of Jesus was an attempt to bring Israel a Messiah who would show them that he was the Messiah by expressing the ways and the actions of God before the people. He would be the promised deliverer to the Jews and they would resoundingly reject him on the following grounds. Number one, he didn't come to them as a king. Number two, he didn't come exercising the rituals of the law. Number three, he didn't come as a conquering king to rid the Jews of Roman rule. Number four, he didn't come to reestablish the prominence of Israel. And number five, he didn't come to bring back to Israel peace and prosperity. Israel, in learning of the Messiah, saw all of the prophecy that spoke specifically to his greatness those that spoke to his kingdom and those that spoke to his rule and reign, but they did not see. Those that spoke, they did not want to see. Those that spoke of his suffering, struggle with being identified and ultimately his death. The focus of Israel was totally misplaced. They wanted to see the Messiah as the deliverer in the moment, in the now. They decided that his appearing would change the immediate landscape. Of course, this was a misrepresentation and misinterpretation of what was stated in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. At this point, the Holy Spirit stops me and shares with me these thoughts. In our time, we are very much like the atmosphere during the time leading up to the insertion of the Messiah into the land of Israel. We are convinced by our so-called prophets that greater days lay ahead for our world and for our church. We anticipate a new leader or an old leader to re-emerge, to set the record straight. We expect that God will insert himself through a man and reproduce the peace and prosperity that has been ours in the past. We seem to be unaware of the scripture, my friends. We seem to be unaware of the time clock of God, and we seem to be unaware of the catalytic manner in which God has always operated. It is the principle of cause and effect. Something happens that brings about a corresponding response. We seem to miss the writings of Paul that declares that God has done two things to those who operate having the misrepresentation of God in them. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 26, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Did you see that? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. 
even his eternal power and his Godhead. So that they are without excuse because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and challenged the glory of the uncorruptible God and changed, rather, the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds, to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Then we get down to real. Verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up. That's number one. To uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who blessed, who is blessed forevermore, amen. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even though women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And then verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Please don't miss this, my friends. Paul stated in verse 1, the wrath of God is revealed. Did you hear it? The wrath of God is revealed. We are seeing the scripture unfold in front of our eyes. It's already begun, my friend. When these become prevalent in the land, it is the destination, the description, the identification that the wrath of God has already begun to be seen on the earth in the lives of those who have the opportunity to know God but chose to glorify Him not. We as a church are missing the signposts along the way. We're in the fullness of time that Paul spoke about. The coming of Jesus is imminent and we are hiding from the instability of a king. We should be celebrating the day and the moment, but we are too busy searching for the greatness of another day. We would call it a better day where we would be able again to experience peace and prosperity. While we remain with our feet squarely placed on planet earth, touching the ground. My friend, this is just as it was for Israel, isn't it? The kingdom in which we seek is not a kingdom that will come and overthrow a weak and unstable government, nor is it a kingdom that will bring us peace in our day. Our moment will not be filled with the prosperity of another era. Why? Because we are in the fullness of time. The wrath of God has been exposed. What God has given up and rejected and disapproved has already been exposed. We're in the fullness of the time. We don't want it anymore than Israel wanted their Messiah. But my friend, it is upon us nonetheless. Do you remember the Christmas story? When they saw the star and the Magi came and Israel knew, they knew 
that this was the sign of the Messiah because they knew the Old Testament. But instead of celebrating the moment, Israel was concerned about an unstable king and therefore they sat on the birth of the Messiah. Our ears are hearing the tune of false teachers who speak false words of contentment. But to those of us whose ears are listening to the one who is is the gate for the shepherd, the one who is the, the, the voice of grace, we hear a much different sound. It's a sound that is appropriated and appropriate for the moment of the fullness of time. It is the sound of a coming kingdom, glory to God. It is the sound of hope. It's the sound of victory. And it's the sound of both redemption and adoption. Oh, that the church would seize the day. Oh, that the man of grace might be proclaimed. Oh, that we would cease our search for comfort and come to the comforter. The victories await those who do. Someone said, what about the lost souls who have not come to Christ? My friend, we need to come to this understanding. Regardless of the day or the hour in which the Father chooses to speak and send Jesus in the return in the clouds, there are going to be those who are going to be lost. Why? Because God has given them over. God has given them the, the mind that is reprobate, and that mind is disapproved and rejected. There are always going to be those that are lost. This is an unmistakable fact. The wrath of God has already been released. But if we knew the fullness of time, would be, we would be more inclined to share truth with the unbeliever. And of course, if we could comprehend it, we would. But we are sitting still. Why is that? We're awaiting the great revival of our day. Expecting God to send another leader to produce before the end. Some point to scripture to support the end time revival. Scripture such as Haggai 2. However, it is very clear when you study Haggai 2 that this scripture refers to the birth of Jesus. This clearly is described as Jesus because he's born in a barn and the dates of his birth are there. Yes, he was the glory of the latter house. Some point to Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2 that speak of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last day. Although we see dust-ups of a movement of the Spirit and desire to perceive it as the revival of our day, my friend, this is just a continuation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began in Acts chapter 2. Now consider this. If we did have a revival, now consider what I'm about to say. If we did have a revival of which the events of Acts chapter 2 were released, what would that really accomplish? You should say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, our leadership in our day is as dogmatic as the leadership of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenines were in the time of Jesus. They would annihilate such a revival because it's not occurring based upon the doctrine of which they espouse. 
Now, does this sound at all familiar? Of course it does. But even those who are hearing me speak this very statement who do not ascribe to the doctrine of the holy baptism of the Holy Spirit will cringe at this thought. Instead of us reevaluating what an end-time revival was supposed to look like, according to Joel 2 and Acts 2 and the book of Acts in general, we hold to a doctrine that would circumvent and put the stop to the very revival the Word of God says needs to occur. We would cringe and say, surely not a revival that was led by the things that we read in the book of Acts. Why not instead let's reevaluate our doctrinal positions? If we're to have a revival based on biblical truth, that's what must happen, my friends. Those who have taught and implored believers to not believe, espouse, attend, any place that believes in the works, the baptism, or the gifts of the Spirit will have to abandon their unbelief. So should we be expecting a revival that changes the church, that replaces their doctrine, makes the mind of man to be seen as selfish and uninformed? Nope. All of that has already been done and man has rejected the truth concerning the scripture. He has rejected the very voice of Jesus Christ as he attempted to speak to the church. Is revival coming? No, my friend. It's already here. It's already been here. The release of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are already in composition, in structure in attitude, and in action. There, he is interacting with men who are surrendering themselves to him. But just as Israel missed the Messiah, we are missing the movement of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus came, I want to talk to you, I, I, the scripture brought me to this, the Holy Ghost brought me to this, so I wanted to share that with you, but I want to continue now with the reason Jesus died. Jesus came to redeem Israel, as we see in Galatians chapter 4, but this coming was at a very strategic time and place in the history of Israel. Their position of being dominated by the Romans was an untenable position. Even in the birth of the Messiah, to which Israel recognized, as I mentioned earlier, they were unable to rejoice because of the instability of the king in that day. So they saw what was happening but were unable to gain the freedom that was provided in the event because they were stuck under the boot of Roman government. The environment was supercharged for a king. The understanding of the land was bent in that direction, but the plan of God had not been prepared in that way. 
what the people wanted, what the people were looking for, what the people were seeing, what the people believed was not to be the way God would unfold the Messiah Savior. No, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. So the fullness of time coordinated with what the people supposed would provide them with a dominant king. Huh. My God, are you hearing this? Are you listening to this in our day and moment? Roman rule would be destroyed in their belief system and Israel would become the prominent people. Israel had said the princes of the world would worship as in Isaiah 49. The moment was ready for him to appear. It is apparent that the Romans also knew that this Messiah was coming. When Herod was in the company of the Magi, he told them to report to him where they found the child as he desired to worship, from, uh, worship him also. Then, when they did not, he determined with his crowd to destroy the children under two years old. This one is, was in his mind the means to eliminate the competition. Think of this. Here's a grown man designed to kill newborns two years old because he thought that one of these children would overthrow his rule. As we can see, the time was very right in the Roman nation for them to be on the lookout for a man to come on the scene. To them, he would be a man who spoke of a kingdom greater than Rome. He would be a man who spoke of a new message of hope. He would be an individual of whom they would find troubled Israel and consequently troubled Rome. Now we see the picture into which Jesus was introduced. Israel was not prepared to receive him due to him being unfocused, due to Israel being unfocused upon the preponderance of the prophecies. Rome was prepared to deal with him as they would any other political dissident. This was the environment of the fullness of time into which Jesus entered. Now why was this so? If we can answer this question, then we can understand what the purpose Jesus was sent to die actually is. So the operation, opposition to him is on every hand. The Jews don't want him, and the Romans don't like him. Now in comes Jesus. The atmosphere is ill-prepared for his ministry or his message. He begins to speak concerning his father and a kingdom that is to come. He begins to show them what that kingdom will look like as he heals the sick, raises the dead, and feeds the hungry. His compassion and mercy upon the people is exemplary. But even with these awesome miracles and wonders, he's met with resistance. Why is that? Now we can come to the reason that the fullness of time was a moment of complete opposition. In order to understand that, we'll have to go back to what God 
did with Lucifer. I'm going to stop there with this session. You don't want to miss session two. We'll begin in it from Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll show you the reason that Jesus had to die was first ministry. Father, I thank you for the word of God. Bless, move, and keep. Open our eyes that we can see in likeness, Father, so that we can know and understand. And we'll give you praise and honor and glory for all of it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Contact us if you will. We appreciate you studying with us, and we would love to hear from you. God bless you until we speak again.